2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with my co-hosts, Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Dudes, how's it going? Hey. It's going great. That's good. Why is it, why is it so great? Who's on the podcast? This week on the podcast, we have a special episode of the podcast with Joshua Davis, Josh Davis, uh, and Aaron uh, sat down and talked to him. Normally what we do on this show is try and bring on writers to talk about sort of the scope of their whole career and how they tell stories and um, without a specific timely focus, but occasionally uh, something is interesting is happening and a story is evolving uh, as we watch it. Um, and Josh has been working on a story uh, about this guy McAfee, who's the guy behind um, McAfee. Uh, antivirus and recently went on the lamb in Belize where he's wanted for questioning around murders and various other things that are uh, fairly insane Uh, and he's been calling Josh during the week so the story's been getting updated I think it was supposed to run as the January wired cover story but he rushed out this ebook so um, yeah I think we can all agree that that we're willing to break this sort of like long career interview (laughs) format uh, for completely fucking insane stories, which this one certainly is. Absolutely. And I mean, it's rare that someone uh, you are profiling may or may not have committed a murder uh, over the course of the profile. And it's even rare that they're uh, willing to call you and talk about it. Um, so I think this is a really uh, interesting uh, test case. Uh, and uh, thanks to Josh. And thanks to Tiny Letter for sponsoring us this week. Welcome, Josh Davis, uh, on the phone from San Francisco. Yep, indeed. A little bit unusual episode here today. Uh, Josh, you just released an ebook uh, version of a story you've been working on for Wired about uh, McAfee. Is, am I pronouncing this right, McAfee? Yeah, Matt, John, John McAfee. I've been working on it for working on it for six months. Um, who most people probably know from um, McAfee Antivirus, which. Uh, has been uh, slowing down Windows computers uh, for as long as I can remember. Right. Um, probably one of the most, probably one of the most installed pieces of software of the '90s, I would guess. Well, I mean, it's it's fascinating because in the uh, early '90s, McAfee, John McAfee, predicted that uh, the antivirus software, antivirus software in general, would be the second most popular software in the world after the operating system. Uh, and uh, it's a claim that's defensible. Absolutely. Why, in your opinion, has antivirus software become less sort of a prevalent thing than it was, say, a decade ago? Have the operating systems themselves incorporated a lot of those ideas? Well, it's still out there. I mean, uh, we still have, you know, McAfee antivirus, total security, Norton total security, all these different um, security products. Uh, It's definitely Kaspersky that's still... 
still pretty prominent. I guess I'm just living in a um, Macintosh utopia here. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> I'm totally unaware of uh, some of this stuff. But um, the the story that you've been working on now for six months has been heavily in the news uh, this week um, because McAfee has gone on the run. So maybe we'll sort of rewind this. Where did this story first cross your desk? Well, on April 30th, McAfee was raided by the gang suppression unit of the Belizean police force and charged with running a meth lab in the jungle. Uh, I saw those news reports and thought, really? You're talking about this multimillionaire tech pioneer who's gone from kind of the heights of achievement to essentially running a meth lab in the jungle? It, It was just flabbergasting. And it seemed to me that there must be more to this story. And were you were you aware of other than than his software? Were you aware of McAfee at all previous to that? No, no, I, I okay. knew nothing about him. And what what was your sort of first step in in pursuing the story? I sent him an email and I said, uh, "Hey, uh, I, it seems to me like there must be more to this story. Can I come down to Belize and talk to you?" And he wrote back immediately and said, "Yes." And uh, how long did you end up uh, spending in Belize? I made two trips there. I made one trip in June, and then I made another trip in August for about a total uh, altogether of about three weeks. So uh, I, I will admit that this story crossed uh, my radar first when um, Gizmodo published a story by a different writer, a shorter story sort of on the same uh, topic. Were you aware that other people were working on the story alongside you? Well, I, I, there, was a, there was a Gizmodo story... Um, that came out before McAfee went on the run. Right, uh, yeah, well, that was about maybe 10 days ago or so. Yeah, and, and I saw that, and uh, that story didn't have a lot of recent reporting. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, 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 that, that didn't particularly um, concern me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then he went on the run, and now it becomes an international news story, and everybody's right. uh, on it. And what was fascinating for me about that was that he, he started calling me. Uh, he, he called me on Monday morning. In fact, well, first of all, I spoke to him on the day of the murder. And was it your intention? Is this just incredibly uh, serendipitous timing, or, or did you expedite the story because of the, the recent developments around it? Yeah, I mean, what's, uh, w- the challenge here is that Wired is still a print magazine. Of course, there's Wired.com, but uh, but the the two sides are, are, are separate entities with their separate editors, and I work on the magazine side, and so this story was scheduled for the January issue, which would come out at the end of December, and uh, that was the plan up until McAfee went on on the lamb. So then we're faced with the question: What do we do? There's all this kind of um, breaking news reporting that's going on. And so, so give me an idea. At the time he goes on the lam, uh, how much lead? To, how much time did you have left before you needed to file for that that January issue? Well, I had already, you know, I'd already written the story, and it was just going through the traditional magazine edit process: the copy editing, the fact checking, all that sort of uh-huh. stuff. Uh, and so there was this question of: should we just immediately put the story online on Monday? And our feeling was that we have certain strengths as a magazine. We have this intense, deep six months of, uh, of reporting on this exact topic. Uh, and we also had just done a photo shoot two weeks earlier. 
and had great photos. And so we didn't necessarily want to be just another blog post, right. which kind of come and go. Uh, we wanted to be the definitive story about McAfee's experience in Belize leading up to this incident. Uh, and so there was this kind of head-scratching, like, what's the best way of doing that? Because if we just put it on a blog post, it looks like a blog post. It doesn't have any of the polish and sophistication uh, that, that Wired is known for. And so we decided that, in fact, the best way to do it would be to release a, a digital book, which Wired has never done before with one of its articles. Oh, I was going to ask. So this is the first, this is the first uh, thing of its kind. This is the first one. This is Wired Single 001. And since, uh, you know, in terms of the, what we cover in this podcast, it's both the sort of reporting and the publishing end. What, uh, was that like a figuring out how to do that? Were you involved in how is this going to get sold? What does it look like? I mean, it's, it's sort of uncharted territory. Yeah, it's totally uncharted territory. Uh, we, we were all sitting around a table thinking, what's the best way of doing it? And what's great about Wired is that there's a lot of smart people and everybody uh, kind of put our heads together, both on the design side uh, and the production side, on the dot-com side. And... Uh, turn this thing out in four days. I was going to say. I was going to say. And uh, for people who are listening, you can pick this up in the uh, Wired app itself for the iPad or the iPhone, uh, the Kindle Fire Store, I believe, and the Nook is where it's available. Yeah, I mean, you just go to Amazon and you type in Joshua Davis McAfee. Yeah, so you'll get it. So this is out there now. But uh, what you didn't point out in those four days is also uh, it includes pretty up to the minute reporting. The end of the story, I just finished it. I'd say the some of the stuff that occurs in the end of the ebook happened this week, potentially. Yeah, and uh, as recently as, I'm trying to think what the actual last bit is. I think it was Thursday. Uh, and, and so we published on Friday morning, and the last, uh, the, you know, the last bit of reporting was on Thursday. Now, now you're still in contact, to, to catch people up on the story, you've been in phone contact with McAfee, uh, throughout this week. Exactly. And if the situation continues to change, would you reissue the ebook with new information? I think so. I think uh, what we would do is we would uh, update the reporting and then you can push it to um, people who have already bought it. And then obviously people who haven't bought it can buy buy it fresh. Right. And for, you know, you, you were talking about Wired uh, going through a traditional uh, laborious fact-checking process, and I assume that this story is not an easy story to fact-check. Uh, in terms of rushing this book out, how how did that work with the the Wired process, and and how were those those final pieces of information vetted? We just worked twenty-hour days. Um, luckily, I had extensive recordings from my investigation in Belize. Uh huh. Um, so that was actually pretty straightforward. Um, and then the fact check department was able to call people and follow up and email and, and they did everything that they normally do, which, you know, uh, it just got condensed into a very short period of time. So stepping back a little bit here, um, we, we've talked about McAfee is uh, a pioneer in the tech industry. Uh, it's an instantly identifiable name. Um, I think most people have almost no knowledge of what 
uh, happened to him after uh, he built this fortune. Sort of briefly take us through uh, uh, where the story goes from um, the point when he, he cashes out from the antivirus stuff. Well, he cashed out in the mid-90s. He started another company and sold that for tens of millions of dollars, well, uh, roughly $20 million. Uh, and then he started, uh, he invested in another company, uh, made a significant amount of money there. So he continued to be a tech investor and, and, a, and kind of a, a tech pioneer. Guru. But then in the 2000s, a tech guru, <laughs> then in the early 2000s, he started to switch gears and he opened a yoga studio. He built a series of runways in the southwestern desert. Uh, to kind of pioneer a new sort of ultralight airplane sport. And then uh, in starting around 2008, 2009, um, he held a series of one-day auctions and sold just about everything he had and bought a property in Belize, sight unseen, and moved down there. And which which is sort of where your story with him picks up. That's sort of the where the next chapter uh, begins. Um yeah, I mean, in my story, I, I, I start with his present-day experiences in Belize, but then I flash back all the way to his childhood and explain how his life evolved all the way from, from college to his Ph.D. program through his first jobs and uh, getting busted for buying marijuana in, in uh, Bristol, Tennessee, uh, following him all the way through his, the 80s and, uh, and the formation of McAfee, and then his quote-unquote retirement to Belize. So it's really, it's a biography. I mean, it's a thir- the book is, is a 13-chapter, 13 13,000-word 13, biography of the man. I was struck when I read it, because I did, I did read that Gizmodo piece first, that you, um, you know, what you were talking about, about some of the experimental uh, airplane stuff, which is like a it's an, a whole other story unto itself that um, isn't isn't in in your piece at all. You must have had to cut even to get to this thirteen thousand word level. You must have had to cut a lot out of the story. Yeah, I, I mean, you, you have you have an epically long and and varied life that this guy has lived. Um, so part of it was. I begin the story in Belize and then flash back. And so I only flash back to things that kind of move the story forward vis-a-vis what was going on with his life now. Is this the first story that you've done that has taken the form of a biography? You know, I've, do- I've done profiles before, certainly. Uh-huh. Um, I wrote a, a story a number of years ago about the mastermind behind the world's largest diamond heist. Ah, uh, yes, yes, I remember that, yeah. I generally think of your style as uh, adventure uh, reporting, um, that you, you're, you're uh, an extremely efficient storyteller at telling um, a story in a compact period of time. Uh, like I'm thinking of the story you did about the um, ship that's flipped over and they're trying to right the ship. Um, that's a story that really expands time. It's, I think probably the whole story really takes place in one day, the action, um, but you're seeing it from all of these different perspectives in real time. What were the sort of challenges of, of putting together a life like McAfee's that's very varied and um, in some ways is being narrated by a fairly unreliable voice, um, McAfee himself? Yeah, it, it it's complicated one of the through lines in my story is whose version of reality is true. 
I arrived there and he told me that the government was persecuting him, that he didn't do what uh, they accused him of doing, and that in fact the story was totally different, that he was trying to clean up uh, the northern part of Belize, this small little town of Carmelita, that this little village of 1,600 people was an epicenter of the drug trade, and that he had taken it upon himself to single-handedly play sheriff. He built a jail, uh, he started uh, putting the police on his payroll, he accosted people, he went into people's homes armed and told them to shape up or else. Uh, and it was all based on his perception that the place was very dangerous, that people uh, were trying to kill him, that uh, this was the main through route for narco-traffickers going into Mexico. And so I said, okay, well, I'm going to go there. I'm going to go check it out, see what I see. And he said, well, you have to be very careful. So people will try to kill you. Uh, he said, you cannot go alone. And so I'm like, okay, well, I hired a bodyguard. It's the first time I've ever done that. Tell, tell me about the process of how one hires a uh, bodyguard in Belize. I, uh, so initially he wanted me to hire this man named Eddie McCoy, who he uh, introduced to me as an assassin. And so I had a number of conversations with McCoy about hiring him, and McCoy was, said that he would be willing to do it. And then I spoke to another man who is in the private security business down there, and he said, are you crazy? That, that guy's a gangster. You should absolutely not hire him. Uh, and so this fellow uh, put me together with, with a former Belize Defense Force soldier uh, who I hired for a day uh, to, to take me around the mainland. But what was interesting about it, I, I, I spent a day with him and, and kind of walking around uh, Belize City and trying to talk to people. And I just didn't feel... I didn't feel uh, like I was in a dangerous situation, and so I decided I'd done, I didn't need it. That, in fact, my perception of the danger of Belize was different than, than McAfee's. And it also occurred to me that it would be very hard to interview people if I had this big, heavy, tough guy hanging over my shoulder. What was the opinion of your bodyguard himself as to uh, the dangerousness of your task? Oh, he, he thought, oh, yeah, it's dangerous. You need, you need my help. <laughs> you need to pay me. Um, you need to pay me. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a bit of a conflict of interest. But so I ended up not hiring him, you know, going forward. And I just went up north by myself and felt fine. You know, I would go into this village and I would walk down the, the narrow dirt paths and knock on doors and sit in people's living rooms. And w the story that they told was totally different than the story that McAfee told. They said that it was a quiet little village and that this guy showed up. They had no idea who he was. They, you know, a, a large portion of the houses there don't have electricity. Uh, they, you know, they don't have computers. And so they, they had never heard of McAfee. Uh, they just knew that this white guy showed up and started telling them what to do, as if he was almost acting out his own personal, uh, you know, issues against the backdrop of this impoverished town and that they were terrified of him so in reporting those like i'm thinking about like um there's a, a part of the story where mcafee shows up at someone's house who's shot a gun in the street and he's uh playing the sort of clint eastwood role of um you give me you give up the gun or else uh, you have till tomorrow um and and that incident unfolds 
in one way from uh, from McAfee's perspective, but you're generally sort of undercutting his valuable value as a reliable narrator. How did you how did you uh, walk the line of uh, telling both sides of that story in a way that doesn't simply say McAfee's lying, but also says you really need to take all of these stories with with a grain of salt? Well. What's interesting about it is that both parties confirmed all the details. Right. They all confirmed the same facts. McAfee did show up. He did have. He was armed. His girlfriend did have a giant rifle. Uh, it was an air rifle, but uh, it was a giant rifle with a scope on it. He did uh, demand that they turn over the gun, and he did say that if they didn't, uh, the the man involved would be a dead man. Uh, everybody said <laughs> all of that's true. The the difference is the why, what was going on behind the story. Uh, these, this family, they're called, their name is the Allens, said that, uh, that Berger Allen, uh, one of the brothers, had fired the gun at a pack of dogs that had attacked him. McAfee says, no, that's ridiculous, that there, it was a drug deal gone bad, and this man fled, you know, this, this, uh, the other party fled on a motorcycle, and, and Berger tried shooting at him. Uh, the, I did speak to an eyewitness who saw that. Uh, who saw, uh, you know, uh, Alan firing at a retreating motorcycle. Uh, and so I just put all that in there. It's, it's an interesting thing, thing because when I was reading the story, I was like, there's no way this ends well for McAfee. There's no way that this kind of thing can, can go on. Um, but up until, um, you know, a week or two ago when he did go on the lamb, um, there wasn't sort of a conclusive ending to this uh, Carmelita episode. H- how do you see? How would have you ended this story had this amazing ending to the story not uh, offered itself? Well, the, the 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 old ending was essentially where the story begins now, um, which is when I went back to Ambergris in August uh, to confront McAfee and say, "Look, this is what I found in Carmelita." Uh, I spoke to a number of people who said, yes, there is crime, but it's it's not an epicenter of narco-trafficking. It's a small village. Uh, people get drunk. They get into fights. There is marijuana. People do smoke weed, and, and you know, there, there are drugs, but it, it's <laughs> there are drugs everywhere. Uh, so it's not like this place is, uh, is the most corrupt village in the world, which is what McAfee said. He said... You know, he, he was astonished to discover that this village in his backyard was the most corrupt village on the planet. So I, I told him all that, and he had a pretty startling reaction, which is he emptied the bullets out of his Smith & Wesson 38 special. He picked one of the bullets up. He loaded it into the chamber, closed the cylinder and spun it, and he put the gun to his head saying, I'm going to do a demonstration. Actually, what he said was, can I do a demonstration? Then he, he put the gun to his head. And I was like, no, <laughs> this is, I don't want to see this demonstration. I said, we don't have to do this, John. And he goes, I know we don't. Uh, and he starts pulling the trigger. And remember, there's one bullet and six chambers, and he pulls the trigger five times. And, uh, you know, this, I'm terrified. And he pulls the trigger again, and nothing happens. And now he starts pulling the trigger repeatedly, again and again and again. And he says, I can do this all day. I could do this 
a dozen times. I could do this a hundred times. I could do this thousands of times. The reason is because you have missed something about reality. I was not perceiving reality correctly, was the point he was trying to make. That there was a bullet, there was a gun, and yet what I thought was going to happen didn't happen. My assumptions were wrong. And he said that the same was true of my reporting in Carmelita. That I had gone there and seen one thing, but that my assumptions about what I was seeing and, and what I was being told was wrong. And it was the same as this game of, of Russian roulette. But then to prove the point that it wasn't just a trick, he opened the door to his bungalow, pointed the gun at the sand, started pulling the trigger until the gun went <laughs> and shot the bullet into the sand. I interpreted that as uh, a sleight of hand on his part, but you never, you never quite uh, explain exactly uh, what your, uh, your understanding of the reality of that situation is. Well, I asked him, I said, it's a trick, uh, you know, after he shot the round into the sand, I said, why don't you explain to me what you just did? And he, and he said, let's do it again. But he refused to explain it to me. Um, I, I, clearly, it's a trick because the bullet didn't fire into his head when he was pulling it. Uh, I mean, he showed me the gun as he's pulling the trigger. I could see the bullet moving around. And, and there's probably some sort of button that uh, that can be pressed that's, a, that's a, a trigger shield, I would imagine, that would pop up a piece of metal between the hammer and the cylinder such that you see the hammer moving, the cylinder's rotating, the bullet's in there, but the hammer's not connecting uh, with the bullet. I thought he was palming the bullet and then like somehow tricking you and putting the bullet back in the gun or something but that would have not been possible no no i saw i saw the bullet in the in the chamber uh and you know i knew it was a trick obviously because the bullet wasn't firing into his head but at the same time i I didn't care that it was a trick it it, it's it's too dangerous of a of a trick to to play sure this that sort of brings up an interesting coda to the story which is I was left after reading like the story with the idea I sort of understood a lot more about McAfee's character, but there are still enduring mysteries um, to what he was up to, um, and when there's still the enduring mystery of where he is. But uh, you know, namely, in he was cleaning up this town, but he was also hiring gangsters who who appear to have legitimate ties to the drug trade, um, and additionally, he was researching. Um, experiment or, or posting on bulletin boards for experimental drug stuff, and his his explanation on both of those accounts feels pretty shaky. Do you feel like you you have a grasp on this whole story, or are you are you still looking for answers? Well, uh, I think with McAfee, we'll all always be looking for answers. Uh, he's a tough nut to crack. Um, you know, the, in regards, for instance, to the drug stuff, uh, he posts copiously about uh, manufacturing 50 pounds of this very nasty drug called MDPV. Uh, and yet, uh, he says that it was all a prank, and the people that I spoke to who lived at the compound uh, where he was supposedly doing this, who worked there, uh, never saw this, never saw him producing mass quantities of drugs. But um, but he did have a his a history of interest in uh, dr- sexuality and drugs. Is that right, or is that only from the Bolton Board forums that that information? Yeah, that's where it's coming from. Okay, that, 
you know, on the bulletin boards, he said that this is a great aphrodisiac and uh, you have to be careful with it because it's so powerful that if you're left in a room by yourself with a dog and you take it, you'll fuck the dog. Right. Okay. So there's no real uh, second source on a lot of this stuff other than himself. And he claims it was a joke. Correct. Uh huh. And are you satisfied with his, what he says about this stuff? Not entirely. Uh, it, it, it's such an elaborate joke. Um, you know, his explanation, he's, he's retired and he doesn't have anything else to do besides play these jokes. Uh, you know, I know, I mean, he, he said that he got clean and sober in 83, 1983, he got clean and sober and he's been sober ever since. Um, he is injecting testosterone. He admitted that to me and he feels that that's a normal thing to do and lots of guys do it, but I can see how that could get you amped up. You know that he's definitely got this manic personality, right? Um, and I can see how you don't necessarily need drugs to have um, kind of a, a a mental breakdown. Well, it certainly what doesn't take a psychiatrist to pick up on uh, sort of a pathological paranoia uh, that permeates every story uh, he tells. Yeah, you know, and what's fascinating to me about that, and, and this is what I was interested in 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 my book, is talking about how that that pathological paranoia is what made him very wealthy. It's the reason why we all know him, sure, because he convinced all of us to be paranoid about viruses and buy his software. And it's almost a karmic twist now that he is on the other end of this, where he feels like uh, he is being personally attacked by enemies seen and unseen. But in a situation that he, he very much created himself. Yeah, but it, it grew out of, uh, he created it uh, because of this paranoia. So, for instance, he moves into this little village that, um, in my experience, was a quiet, sleepy little village. He shows up and perceives it to be the epicenter of the drug trade and uh, crowded with criminals and decides that he's going to go after them just as he did Back in the 80s with his antivirus software, he's going he's gonna to clean up the world. Uh, in this case, he's going to clean up this little village. Uh, and so his actions there, and it's such a bizarre thing. Like, who would think that you would move into a small little village in the Central American jungle and decide to single-handedly uh, take on what you perceive to be the narco-traffickers? <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, and, I, and I think because of that, the people in this village and even the government of Belize had no idea what he was up to. It's such, it's, it's incomprehensible. Yeah. It, it literally does not make sense in a lot of ways to do, to do what he's done. And I, you know, I'm also totally willing to accept that there's corruption in Belize, uh, that there, you know, the, 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 that it's not, um, a totally, uh, cleaned up place. Of course, uh, there, there's, there's, there's probably a lot of corruption. Uh, and so I think he may have been responding and perceiving some amount of truth, but I also think that his paranoia blew that way out of proportion. How, how do you view your uh, personal responsibility as a reporter um, when you're dealing with someone like McAfee who there seems to be a, a lot of evidence is mentally ill? Uh, it's a good question. Uh, I don't know. I mean, what do you think? <laughs> well, I, I mean... I, I wouldn't, I'm not sure I could conclusively say he's mentally ill, but um, I wonder how you feel. I mean, you've become a 
player, you, you've shifted from simply being the reporter in this story to you are now a part of the story. You're, um, he's calling you and, and, and making you his mouthpiece. So I'm, I'm wondering what sort of tensions you feel uh, and whether you've ever been in a situation like that before. Um, no, I mean, this is a pretty unique situation. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> you know, ne- ne- never has a, a multimillionaire tech pioneer gone on the lam for a murder and, and called me from hiding. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is a first. And he seems to trust you or, or he wouldn't, wouldn't be calling you. Yeah, I mean, I spent six months interviewing him. Uh-huh. Um, so I think it was natural that he would, he would call me. And it was the longest interview of his life. <laughs> Uh, I don't think he's ever had spoken to a reporter for that long in that depth. Um, so, you know, when I was on the phone with him, uh, I would say the obvious. Why don't you get a lawyer and turn yourself in if you have nothing to be afraid of? You know, if, if, you, didn't, if you didn't do this. And he would just laugh at me. and said, you don't understand. You don't understand Belize. So it's, it, uh, you know, my, my sense of my responsibility is I can ask the questions, and that's what a reporter does. But beyond that, I, I, I don't see where my responsibility, you know, lies. But I'm, I'm, happy, to, I'm happy to hear any ideas you have. No, no, I mean, I, I, you know, um, I, I think it's a, um, it's a quandary. You know, I, I, I think it's, it's something that obviously has to be navigated on a, a case-by-case uh, basis. It certainly, as a reader, makes it even more um, interesting for me that the, that it has taken this turn where you've become uh, a player in the story. Um, do, you, do you think he believes that your book will vindicate him? Um, you know, I, 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 as part of the fact-check process, I walked through the book with him, and I said, this, you know, it says this, 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 this. And I was very upfront with him about, look, uh, as I was when I confronted him in August, I said that I went to Carmelita. Uh, I found uh, my experience was not your experience. I lay that out in thousands of words of reporting. Um, and, uh, and, I, and I describe his reaction, which is the Russian roulette. And, uh, and he seemed satisfied uh, as of... You know, certainly before the murder, when I, when I did that walkthrough with him last week. How long has it been uh, since you've spoken to him? I got an email from him today. Will you continue to uh, sort of blog updates as they go forward? How do you see uh, maintaining this uh, developing story? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I imagine I'll just keep doing what I'm doing. Do you see, um, you know, in terms of this shorter stuff being published and, and the tension between longer in-depth reporting versus um, shorter, more news cycle internet reporting, uh, does, it, does it worry you as a reporter going into saying, okay, if I'm going to spend six months on this story, um, does this sort of modern style where people are doing these quicker stories, are you worried that you're going to get scooped more and more as time goes on? Um, and I, I'd put asterisks around the idea of scooped there but um the stories that that i tend to do are are long haul stories mm-hmm. you know for instance the world's largest diamond heist story took me seven seven years wow um the the story of the cougar ace i followed that for uh eight years mm-hmm. um of course the cougar ace was was a standalone incident but i followed those guys starting from 
1999, I think, wow. is when I first met them. And so I, I stayed in touch with them and, and followed them onto various uh, jobs until the right incident happened that would highlight uh, everything that they did and the risks that they took. So the type of reporter that I am, I, I, I tend to dive deep. Uh, and yes, of course, sometimes it is a risk, uh, but at the same time, it's also a strength because I think as this incident shows, when the breaking news happened, I was in a position that nobody else was in. Thank you, Josh Davis, for coming on the podcast short notice uh, and figuring out how to get a voice recorder for his Android phone. Uh, thanks to our editor, Lauren Kirchner. Thanks to my co-hosts, Max and Evan. And thank you to Tiny Letter for continuing to sponsor this podcast. We'll see you next week. Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Teen Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Teen Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.